This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hi there, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich, and I am really glad you're here. This is episode 200. I It's hard for me to believe that we've done that many, but uh, here we are. I had a few different ideas of what I might like to do for this milestone episode to try to make it special. You know, I just at the end of 2019 did kind of a recap episode. I really wasn't ready to do another one of those. I had some other ideas related to COVID-19, which we're certainly in the midst of here right now, if you're listening when this is coming out. I also wanted to do something maybe along the lines of women in ag tech, which I think is probably still coming at a later episode. Anyway, when it ultimately came down to it, it just felt right to do an episode that I thought just speaks to the core of what this show is all about. You know, one that is both a bit grounded, but also a bit futuristic in some ways. Uh, One that involves a natural evolution of technology, but an evolution that can be enabling and make a big impact in the long term. And I thought episode 200 was also a great one to start bringing back the farmer spotlight segments at the end. So stay tuned because at the end of this episode, we have a spotlight segment with Northerly and their direct-to-consumer oats. If you do any search of ag tech, certainly an image search, you're bound to find a picture of a drone or drones. They've sort of become a symbol for modern ag technology and in some ways a symbol for overhype uh, associated with modern ag technology. I haven't done many drone episodes because beyond capturing imagery, I really haven't seen much that sort of intrigued me. Uh, That changes, though, with our guest here today, Rantizo. We have on the show their CEO, Michael Ott. Even if you are a drone skeptic, I think this show will push you a little bit closer into being a believer. Essentially, Rantizo uses drones with a 14-foot boom sprayer to precisely spray, or in some cases, even seed or pollinate crops. Uh, Their technology is impressive, and I find their business model quite fascinating as well. Michael's an impressive guy. He's got a background in both chemistry and venture capital. His previous startup invented a way to apply nitrogen to rice seed. Uh, It took off in countries like India, so even though Michael is a lifelong Iowan, uh, he is a well-traveled one. I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Michael is explaining who the target customer is for Rantizo's drone sprayers. Yeah, so the drone spraying operators can be a motivated farmer, somebody that wants to put together a business and doing that. Uh, We're more tailored towards ag retailers. That's our our desired operators. So somebody that's got an established business, uh, they're maybe doing some ground spraying and realize that there's a lot of muddy days that they can't get out and do anything at all. And with a drone, you can just fly and apply. And I think a lot of people, when drones came out, kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could do things like spray? But it's not quite so easy in practice, right? What, what's what's the hard part of getting this to the point that, that you all have? The really hard part is regulatory. That's really the thing that in pretty much all jurisdictions, that's, that's the hard thing to do. So Rantizo has our license from the FAA, so we're able to go in any state. 
and then once you're in a state, there's different rules that uh, you've got to figure out. Sometimes it's just simply filling out a form, passing a test. Sometimes you've got to have 50 hours, sometimes 500 hours. So it goes state to state and it's different there. Uh, so we've got that mapped out for what you need to do in each individual one and are able to go out and, and knock those out. Gotcha. And for a startup, you know, trying to get a foothold in the market and having to sort of bear the brunt of this regulatory red tape, aren't you kind of opening the market up for competitors? Uh, to a certain extent. I mean, the vast majority of states that we're in, we are the first people doing it. And a lot of times we found like, like, well, we don't really know. Let's figure it out with you. And we've been pretty open with all the, with everyone, especially with regulators and legislators, because we just got to educate them on what's happening. And a lot of the times there are rules that we have to follow that definitely don't apply, but we have to follow those rules anyway. Now, obviously, you know, I think people get the concept right away that, wow, I instead of taking a tractor out there or a sprayer out there and actually spraying a crop, I'm sending a drone out there and it's not causing compaction. And it could be essentially quicker and easier in some ways, I imagine. But what is the what, what's the competitive advantage that these ag retailers are getting at? You know, for them, they're getting they're getting paid either way. So why, why do this? Correct. First one is that we can get into fields where nobody else can. So a day like today in Iowa, so it's raining pretty hard. Uh, it'll rain till about 2, 2.30. And if we wanted to, we could go spray this afternoon. We're doing a demo tomorrow. It's going to be super sloppy and muddy. That's totally fine. We can get out and apply in those situations. So one, it gives access to fields where nobody else can. That's, that's a, a primary uh, benefit. A secondary benefit is that we can apply to just portions of fields. So we had a press release. I don't know if you saw that. We integrated with an imagery company called Tyrannus. We mapped out the issue in the field and saw that there was a micronutrient deficiency in this case. It could have been a micronutrient or a pest or whatever it was. But the takeaway is that it was a small portion of the field that needed to be sprayed. So we understood what needed to be sprayed right there, applied just in that location, and we got a 2.6% yield increase in that farmer's soybeans. So rather than spray the whole field, we sprayed just a portion of it. So there's a significant advantage for the farmer, especially because we can dramatically reduce your input costs, just applying where things need to go. Yeah. Well, you know, on your normal sprayer, you've got these massive tanks of product. On a drone, I bet you're pretty limited in terms of how much you can carry. How do you solve that problem? So we we stay below 55 pounds, and we do that because then I can train pretty much anyone to be an operator. If you're over 16 years old, you can pass the 107. We can train you to be an operator. So that's uh, we, we keep it very simple because ultimately – we're solving for the labor problem that pretty much everyone has. That in, in corn, soybeans, in hemp, in berries, in orchards, everybody has labor problems. So that's what we're solving for. So we stay uh, below 55 pounds. We end up making multiple trips, which is fine because we can actually tailor the uh, what is delivered out there if you want to. Like when you've got a sprayer, you're basically spraying a ground sprayer. You've got one thing that you're spraying through the whole field. Like, okay, we're going to hit the whole thing with Roundup. We're going to hit the whole thing with this insecticide or whatever it is. 
we can put insecticide there, we can put herbicide there, we can put nutrients here. So we can really modulate what you will put in the field uh, with those smaller loads. So we, we take what could be a disadvantage and turn it into a pretty big advantage. And you would just have, you would have kind of on, on your pickup truck, you'd have the various tanks you need and just switch out the tanks. Uh, you just reload the tank as it goes. It's the same tank every time. And then oh. you just, uh, it, it sprays all the way out. Uh, one thing that we're putting together is an automated mix and fill system. So when the drone lands, we currently have somebody pouring chemicals and unscrewing lids and everything else. And that works just fine. Uh, what we've got coming out next will be an automated system where we can precisely measure exactly what's going in and then precisely load it, do that a lot faster. And then yep. with that, you can actually integrate with the imagery so you can say, in mission one, I want to put just insecticide out. Mission two, I'll do insecticide and some herbicide because in this location, there's insects and there's weeds. In mission three, it's just the weed problem. So we're just putting herbicide out there. So we can actually make those different batches up as it goes and really precisely deploy exactly where it needs to be. And how, how big is the tank? Uh, 2.7 gallons. Okay. All right. So yeah, I, I it, you know, what I love about this stuff, because we, we just did an episode with a small robot company in the UK, and, and it's kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, well, hold on. Let's, so far, we've been trying to make all this precision technology fit the old equipment and the old way of doing things. Let's let's start from the beginning here and think, okay, so because we're going to go through this in a, in a precision ag way, what equipment do we need to optimize for that? And I, I love that sort of different paradigm shift. And similarly, and I know you're, you're already working on this with how you mix and refill, but uh, but it seems like even the way we approach how we manufacture the products themselves, the chemicals themselves might change. Do you see that where it's like, okay, before we we made products for massive tanks. Now we're making products for, you know, two point, uh, did you say 2.5 or 2.7 gallon tanks? Do you see that having sort of a spawning some, some uh, innovation in that space? Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking to essentially all of the major chemical companies about formulations that can really take advantage of the improvements that are enabled by drone spraying. Absolutely. There's a big deal because as the drone flies, it'll move the plant side to side and uh, that'll enable you to really get full coverage. And we've done some studies that show at one foot, three foot and five foot in uh, seven, eight foot tall corn, we're getting the same level of coverage which uh-huh. most sprayers do not have that because it all aggregates on the top because you're going through above everything else and the spray doesn't really get down there. But our drone will move those crops around pretty well and that gets you full coverage uh, or more even coverage, I should say. And uh, that's really advantaged for a lot of different things. If you need a, a contact application or you're trying to do something that's, say, some uh, pest deterrent, you know, like if you're trying to coat something for, so your apples don't get worms in them or, or whatever else it is, you can get full, even coverage around that. There's a big advantage there. You mentioned apples there. And I also saw on your website about spraying vineyards. So are specialty crops sort of the path of least resistance or the low hanging fruit to, to use the pun um, for getting, getting started and getting some more customer adoption on this? Yeah, we, well, we're doing pretty much everything. I mean, we're in vineyards, we're in berries, we're in hemp. Those pay, pay well. Uh, there's not a ton of acres, but there's pretty good opportunities there. We've also done quite a bit in uh, corn and soybean, you know, just your, your big, big commodities. So those are pretty exciting things that we're, we're able to spray just about anything that needs to be applied. We haven't found a situation where we can't do it yet. 
Gotcha. Well, you you have a dealer in the Treasure Valley of Idaho yet, or is that is that territory available for me? It's a, it's open for you. Yeah, we're, right. we've got somebody in Oregon, we've got somebody in California, but yeah, we'd love to expand uh, over to the west. That's actually one of the things that we're trying to find reasons to get out into different places to do demos. So as people tweet about this and share it, we'll pick one of those and then do a demo for them. Hmm. Uh, so we'll travel out to, to wherever it is. And we've, we've done tons of demos around Iowa and around the Midwest. That's pretty easy for us to do. But what we've seen is that when people understand the concept and actually see it in action, they're like, oh, holy cow, this is the real deal. And they see, you know, our drone has a 14-foot boom that sprays a 20-foot swath. So when you see that going through the field, you're like, oh, that actually makes sense. It can cover quite a bit of ground. That's a big drone. Can I put it in a pickup truck? Oh, absolutely. I, I drive a Honda Accord, so I can <laughs> I fold up two of them. I can put them in the back seat. So it, it folds up pretty nicely. So is that the way it works, though, where a retailer can sort of use this as a competitive advantage by being the only one in their area that is a licensee of the technology? Or is it kind of open to anyone who, who sees the value and wants to use it? Yeah, we're setting up what are essentially franchises. So we're putting those into different areas. And there's a big advantage for a, a retailer to do so because we can, as I said, get out in wet, rainy, rainy weather. Uh, we can also extend their territory. So a lot of time, if you're an ag retailer, you're going to go 30, 50 miles because when you're driving, you know, a big heavy sprayer down the road, you'll go 30, 40 miles an hour. You can't go a hundred miles because it takes two and a half hours to drive that far. And then you got to spray and then you got to get a nurse truck out there and it's a mess with ours, put it in a pickup and put it in a trailer, drive 65 down the road. You can extend that territory pretty significantly. A lot of times we're expanding retailers serviceable territory by like 75%. Oh, wow. That's a really big advantage because a lot of those retailers have kind of a natural monopoly because they're the only one for 30 miles or 50 miles or whatever it is because mm-hmm. nobody can afford to get in there. But with this system, you can start stretching that territory and start to encroach on uh, on your customers, on your opposing customer base. Right. And what about once I get to the field, how much slower is it than driving one of these big sprayers through a field? Uh, so we're flying about 15 miles an hour. We're covering right now 14 acres an hour. So that's at a three gallon per acre rate. That's our, our current setup. With our automated mix and fill system, we'll bump that to about 20 to 23. That'll be out in a couple months. And then by the end of the summer, we'll be swarming, flying three of these at once. And then we'll be covering about 60 acres an hour. So that'll be what most tractors are doing, about 60, 80 acres an hour. So we'll be able to do that in any situation. Okay, how do I fly three drones at once? The drones fly themselves. That's the thing. It's actually quite simple to do. And once again, we've got a regulatory block holding that because the FAA doesn't really have rules for one pilot flying three helicopters or one pilot flying four planes because that's impossible. But when you've got an autonomous drone that flies itself, it's really simple to just have it go and and they take off and they do their own thing. So our drones have collision avoidance. They have terrain following. Everything is mapped out beforehand. So you're actually holding the controller. You're not actually flying the drone. Okay. And you made the comment earlier, you know, anyone 16 years or older, you're confident you can teach to use this technology. What's uh, what's that process look like to to learn this? You know, because 
a lot of people are going to hear this and be like, yes, I want to fly drones that spray crops. That sounds awesome. Uh, but, you know, how likely is it that they can actually do it? If you come with your 107, which is a requirement to do our training, we've got a two to three day training process that uh, we can walk you through everything that you need in terms of mapping and doing the, your, your permitting. We'll figure out in each individual state, if you're in Pennsylvania, if you're in Maryland, if you're in Georgia, what you need to do. We'll walk through all the permitting things and then go through the drone, how to build it, how to put it together, set up all the different features that, that you have. And it's about a two, it's really a two day process. We schedule it for three because sometimes with weather and everything else, uh, especially with the cold this winter, but we were able to get pretty much everybody done in about two days. Wow. So that's pretty slick. Well, we're doing a demo on Tuesday. Uh, last time we did it, we had a group come in for the demo. They did training on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they left and they were ready to rock and roll. So okay. it can be it can be really quick because once again, it's a system that takes care of itself. The drone flies itself. So it's, it's pretty simple to do. Wow. And so every time I get a new employee that I want to have do this for me, it, that new employee would need to get their 107 and then go to your training as well, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. And so we set it up. So the training is $2,500 and then it's $500 for each individual person. So if you have three people go through, it's 3,500. Yep. That's how we work it. And people have been been very open to it, receptive. It's pretty simple and straightforward. We've done it now a couple dozen times. So uh, we've, we've got the process relatively locked in. Okay. And and you sell the drone itself. Is there a software as a service component to this as well? Uh, so there is a, a, a recurring revenue com component. So Rantizo, due to FAA rules, handles all of the billing, handles all the insurance and all the permitting. So we do have ongoing liability for our contractors that are out there because they're flying under the Rantizo 137. They're flying under our group insurance, which is cheaper than buying the insurance individually. And then we roll out continual features as we're with the mix and fill system, with workflow upgrades, with other things improving that. So there's a lot that goes into it. And accordingly, we capture a third of the revenue. So we recommend that the contractors charge $150 an hour Hour, and then we capture 50 and then they get 100. And uh, with that, we do all the billing through an app. Uh, we handle all those things for people. So it makes it really slick and easy. Okay. So they would charge $150 per hour plus the cost of, of whatever the, the yeah, input is. Yeah, plus the, if it's cover crop seeds, if it's chemical, whatever whatever that is. So that that, that goes on top of it. And, and that, that's been pretty good. People have different models for how they bill. Uh, a lot of places in the Midwest will charge, um, you know, a small markup on the chemical and then charge their, they make their margin on the per acre uh, application. On uh, the coasts, they tend to do more of uh, just charging what it costs for the, uh, the per acre application and then they double or triple the chemical costs. So we're trying to do a system that works well everywhere. And what we found when you've got the ability to integrate with imagery, we can really precisely get out there. So I don't want to charge you to spray 80 acres. If you've got 80 acres and I'm only going to spray 13 of them or 24 of them or 46, or maybe it's 46 this time and then the next time it's 12, we're not going to charge for all 80. So we'll just charge by the hour and then what we're out there doing, it's best for everyone in that situation. Right. Now, hold on. What's this you said about cover crop seed? 
Sure. So we're applying a lot of different things, uh, exciting things happening. On the liquid front, we're doing anything you can apply aerially, herbicide, pesticide, insecticide, you name it. If there's an aerial rate, we can spray that. Also, on the granular side, we're doing cover crop seeds, which we did a ton at the end of last year. That was a really, really nice opportunity for us. We've done granular fertilizers. So if you've got something that you need to drop out there, we can, we can put those in. Beneficial insects, we can spray. And then exciting announcement that we've got, we've applied pollen to corn from a drone. And I believe we were the only people ever to successfully pollinate corn from a drone. So we partnered up with a pollen storage technology company who's fabulous. And then we were able to fly and apply, putting the pollen exactly where we wanted it to go using RTK technology and then deploying that way. Okay, Michael, I got to tell you, this is awesome. <laughs> this is great. So, so the, the equipment, I imagine uh, the, the exact components are different when we're when we're spraying uh, liquid versus when we're spraying pollen or cover crop seed. Talk to us about that equipment. How much of it do I need to buy if I'm if I'm going to be using this stuff and you know maintenance and re- replacements and all that that comes with equipment that people don't often think about when they first buy the the big chunk. Sure. So the drone is about twenty to twenty five thousand dollars, depending what options you choose. The granular spreader is a thousand dollar upgrade. We sell those about ninety percent of the time. So pretty much everybody we recommend for them to use that because there's so many things that you can do with it. So that that's a pretty much no brainer that we add on almost all the time. Uh, the pollen attachment is something that is proprietary to us. We've got that coming through, and what it does is. It brings the pollen in, has a venturi effect, and sprays it out. And you can actually set the width so it's exactly the width of the uh, planted corn. So if it's an 18-inch row or a 30-inch row or 40 or whatever it is, it'll fly directly over top of those and drop that pollen right where it needs to go. So that's a that's a proprietary thing that we've got, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. But what's the supply of pollen look like? Is it easy to go out and just buy corn pollen, the right kind of corn pollen? No, not at all. That's extraordinarily difficult. In fact, I know of one company that's doing it and we're partnering with them. So Mm. uh, corn pollen in particular lasts for minutes to an hour uh, in a natural state. And this storage technology company can make it last for months. So you could actually take something from one geographic location and bring it to another uh, so that's pretty exciting. Something like apple pollen, you just collect that, put it in a jar, put it in the fridge. That'll last for a long time. So there's certain things that are really, really easy to do. Um, and that's where you've seen a lot of the pollination companies that have been like, okay, you can do that. But it's like, that's not super technical. The stuff that we're yeah. looking at is, uh, we believe we're the only people ever to do that. So there's there's definitely something unique there. And with what kind of precision can you apply something? So our standard unit uh, with standard GPS is accurate to about one meter. So we're within that close to where we intend to be. Uh, With our RTK upgrade, we're within three centimeters. So we're accurate to that level. So when we're doing something like super precise with pollen or we're doing something for a um, a nursery that we really want to be exact, we use the RTK. Uh, Some people just really like RTK precision. So you put a real fine point on it, which is great. We're happy to sell that. uh, But most of the time, the standard GPS is is great. Okay. So what is an operator doing while the drone is flying? You know, once you've punched in exactly what you want it to do, is the operator sitting by the pickup truck waiting for it to get done? You know, what exactly does that look like? 
Yeah, you are typically you have to hold the controller, so they'll have like a little harness, so you'll have that on. You need to have the ability to get out there and, and, and change something. We've not had that situation arise, but certainly you've got to be prepared for that. So legally, they have to hold the controller. Generally, they're mixing up the next load, uh, mixing uh-huh. up that batch, pouring the chemicals and whatever. Uh, with our automated mix and fill system, we'll reduce the need for them to do that. So uh-huh. they'll end up having a fair bit of time in the field. Uh, okay. So that's something that trying to optimize people's time because it's not super valuable for you to be sitting in your tractor driving pretty much straight the majority of the time and then turning around. That's not a, a, a real high value use of time. You can ideally do something more valuable. Same thing with the drone. When the drone takes care of everything for you, you can do more valuable things. So that's where we're, we're building towards that. And then as there's two and three drones up there, there'll be more things to do. But uh, it, it's a pretty pretty simple system. Interesting. And yeah, you mentioned kind of the line of sight. My understanding is the FAA was kind of reviewing some of their regulations that I think maybe up until earlier this month that included things like line of sight. Talk to us about those. You know, what? how are the regulations? Are they getting harder to navigate? And what do you see there? Yeah, my my favorite regulation story is early on, we were classified as crop dusters. So mm-hmm. we had to follow all crop duster rules, including wearing a seatbelt. So <laughs> you would literally just get a belt that was a seatbelt, and then you're standing on the ground holding the controller of a 55-pound drone, and you got to have a seatbelt on. You also had to have an operator's manual on board. So the operator's manual is on a chip on board. So oh, man. Stuff like that, like that's a perfectly good rule. Like every crop duster should have an operator's manual and should have a seatbelt for sure. That makes sense. But when you classify us as a crop duster, uh, that doesn't really make sense. So that's like a good example to get people thinking about some of these rules don't really apply, but yet we have to follow them. So uh, that's that's one example there. The FAA has been pretty forward thinking and forward looking and they're moving, you know, at a governmental pace, but they are moving, which is is really good. And we're, we're happy about that. So looking at things, getting beyond visual line of sight, I think is is smart if you can do that safely. You know, when you've got drones that are with collision avoidance, with terrain following, you know, that fly and, and it's really hard for them to run into something. We've not had that happen yet. So I don't know what you have to do to, to cause an accident like that. But uh, hopefully we don't find out. It better knock on yeah. some wood there. Right. Things like maintaining visual line of sight, staying below 55 pounds. We always stay below 98 feet. Typically, we're below 20 feet, like the vast majority of the time, we're three to five feet above the crop. So we're staying low, we're spraying right where it needs to go, following all the rules, and then doing it really safely. Like, it's really important for us to have safe flight. Earlier, you did ask a question about maintenance. And I was happy up until like two weeks ago, we had had no maintenance on any of our, you know, 15 to 20 drones that are out there. And after how long, how long have they been out there? The earliest one was July of last year. Okay. Yeah. Coming and up on a year. So, you know, mon- months and months of flight on multiple drones and we had had zero maintenance. Well, one of our antennas was sticking up and we put it in a, a car a little too abruptly and knocked an antenna off. Hmm. So then we replaced the antenna. So we now have a an entry in our maintenance log after all that time. So we tracked it, we've got to do that, but it just shows once again, like 
the safety of the system, the reliability of the system, and all that time, that's been the one thing that we've had to replace. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, wind? I know wind is a concern with sure. regular spraying. Uh, is it any different in this case? Yeah, you'll never be limited by the drone because of wind. So our drone can fly in up to 22 mile an hour winds. Most chemical labels will top out at 15 to 18 miles an hour. So you shouldn't be applying in 20 mile an hour winds anyway. It's not right. on label. So that's where you're not limited by the drone because of that. You're from a venture capital background. Yeah, this is a, a hardware heavy company. It's, uh, you know, one that requires sort of the total addressable market, I guess, is something maybe you could talk to. But, you know, from, from a venture capital standpoint, just from a high level, that might be some concerns. Why is this a good bet from an entrepreneurial or investor type standpoint? Sure. So we do have a hardware component, which Certain people like, a lot of people don't. The thing that we're generating that is really appealing to a lot of investors is recurring revenues. So that one third of the uh, revenue is uh, a way for us to have a SaaS-like model. Spraying as a service is that, that we say that's our SaaS, spraying <laughs> as a service. So that really, uh, as you look at our projections for revenue, currently we've done more uh, equipment sales and then through the years, the percentage of that will change in terms of application services. That will get it as a larger and larger component as we have multiple drones out there flying and applying. Uh, so that's something that is, is much more appealing to, to investors. So we're really setting up systems that are franchise-like that we can uh, apply in many situations and have pretty much anybody take this and run with it. So that's, that's the thing that is really appealing to a lot of investors. Okay. And do you foresee a situation where will it always be through these ag retail channels or do you see someday where farmers directly are um, working with Rantiso? Uh, they could. What we have found is that the ag retailers have access to all the chemicals. They've been doing the spraying. Ultimately, I would like to have completely unmanned spraying where literally the system just exists in the field and maybe somebody comes by every month or so and reloads water, reloads chemicals, whatever needs to be. And then doing that with a lot of data tracking, uh, that would be where we would love to exist over the long term, which in that situation would probably be direct to a farmer, but we're a couple of years away from there. But that's something certainly that I would I would like to do. Are there some situations or, or types of applications that will just always make sense to use the old way? Uh, I would say... I, no. Right now, it makes more sense to do a pre-emergent when you need full field coverage. You would want to do that uh, a traditional way because that's mm -hmm. it's currently more efficient and cheaper to do that. As we're swarming and we've got an automated mix and fill system, we should be cost competitive with that next year or the following. So I'd say that one would be, uh, I, I think we can start to replace that. But pretty much everything else, it makes more sense to spot spray. Uh, especially if you look at our economics in terms of going to spray a percentage of the field, we can go if, if we miss something, say we do, that, that could happen. We can come back for much cheaper. So if you look at uh, I, I draw up an example in our in our slide set, it's a 100 acre corn application. 
the full chemical cost, it'd be like $3,500 for a $35 chemical. So that's our, our normal rate. So it'd be $3,500 in chemicals. What we can do is apply a percentage of that. And we walk through some examples where it's say, I spray 25% of it. We get everything. Well, not quite. Then we've got to come back and do 10% of it. Then we've got to come back and do 5% more. Our total chemical cost there at the end is 1400 bucks. So we're less than half the chemicals, even with three trips. So you can do multiple applications for cheaper. And if you got it the first time, you're like at 875. So yeah. it's much cheaper to do that uh, than to waste all that chemical. And also that chemical over application causes lots and lots of resistance. And to harken back to one of your earlier questions, the chemical companies do like what we're doing because they see resistance to their chemicals that they've already spent a billion dollars permitting. If we can extend the lifetime of them much longer, yeah. that's a, a big cost advantage for them. Oh, most definitely. What about the big retailers? What do they think of this? Are they are they on board? Or are they uh, seeing a threat to sort of uh, the way they, they've done business in the past? They, those are the exact two schools of thought. We've had some <laughs> that are like, oh man, like I'm in, like this is better, totally mm -hmm. doing it. And others are like, no, you can't do this. Like we've got part of it is them talking their own book. I mean, they've got tens of millions of dollars of equipment sitting there that right. they're designed to do everything. But what we're really addressing is the labor problem that they have. So yeah. a lot of times they've got a lot of equipment that's mostly bought and paid for, but getting people to run it. And then having them at the right times is really difficult. So we're designing these systems with fewer and fewer people required simply because there's not a lot of people out there that want to do this. Like we talk to those ag retailers and hear their pain points and like, we've got the equipment, we've got the nurse trucks, we've got all the filling facilities, but I don't have enough people. And then when I need them, when everybody needs all their field sprayed, I don't have enough people. So right. we're designing those systems to, to work with fewer people because that's the situation we're in. Right. Yeah. I guess the big question becomes like, is your people problem worth the 30%, right? That you're going to need to pay oh, yeah. e essentially. Well, and also, I mean, so if we've got, if we've got a system of three drones, a trailer and a mix and fill that costs maybe a hundred thousand dollars, that's what we're pegging for that. That's covering as much ground as a $400,000 sprayer and two $75,000 nurse trucks. And once again, we're doing it with one person versus three. Mm -hmm. So it's significantly cheaper equipment and less people. So it really right. hits on a lot of the pain points that are that exist for those ag retailers. Right. So the roughly 100,000 would be the three sprayers plus the automated mix and fill, right? Yeah. And, and put it all on a trailer. And on a trailer. Ah. And if I'm if I'm running the numbers on that, you know, how long should I sort of depreciate that out? When, when should I anticipate needing to replace that that equipment? We're pegging that it'll take about uh, three to four years that, that we, we don't know the lifetime because these products have existed for about 18 months. So mm -hmm. I'm guessing three to four years. The payback will be in about 40 days. So wow. if you spray for 40 days you've got all your equipment paid off, which is much, much faster than anything else that's out there. People ask that lifetime question. as like, the more important thing is if, if I buy this, you know, March 1st, I've got it paid for by say June 15th, June 30th, the rest of the time, we're just uh, making money and uh, it'll be a very profitable system. And that's, I think, where we've found a, a lot of the uh, opportunities resonating with these contractors that are out there. Yeah.
Very cool. Well, I really appreciate that. This uh, sometimes I don't always know what I don't know, and so anything we didn't get to that you think is an important part of this story for listeners to hear. Uh, we're excited to show people how it works. Once you see a drone with a fourteen-foot boom flying autonomously through the field, you realize this can scale. Because a lot of people see like, oh, I know what a drone is. It's this big and it's got like a little camera underneath. Yeah. How could you possibly spray a 80 acre field with that? But come and see it. Check out rantizo.com. You can see a lot of videos. We would love to come do demonstrations for people. So if people share this, tweet about it, get talking about us, uh, we'll pick a user and then uh, go do a demonstration for them in, in a relatively far-flung location. We're based in Iowa, so we can pretty much get uh, anywhere. But th- that's, that's a really good opportunity for us to show what we've got in different areas. Well, you heard him there. Go tweet a link to this episode on Twitter and tag at Rantizo Sprays. And you will be eligible for a free demo to how this technology works in person. Now, given the current state of the world being locked down, it wasn't the case when we had the interview. But given the current state of of us mostly being locked down in this country, we probably won't be picking a winner right away. But if you're interested, go tweet right now so that you could be eligible for that when the time comes. Thanks so much to Michael Ott for being on the show. Cool things they are doing over there at Rantizo. Now it's time for another Farmer Spotlight. These are segments we piloted last summer, and many of you really, really enjoyed them. Uh, We feature a farmer who is innovating in their business model and choosing to sell directly to consumers. I select producers for this segment that have an online presence so that you listening, if you like what you hear, can go support them right away and order some food for yourself online. Today, you'll hear from Clayton Wolf. Clayton was born to a family farm in Saskatchewan, Canada, but mostly raised in Arizona. He returned to the family farm in Saskatchewan every summer, and since finally taking over management of the farm after graduating from Cal Poly, he has launched his own brand called Northerly. It's his own brand of oats grown right there on his farm. It really started happening when I uh, began managing our farm in 2014. And just to start off, you know, I got thrown into a very lucky situation where my dad was at the point of doing semi-retirement and he basically gave me the, uh, gave me control of the whole farm. And it wasn't, you know, a, a battle of having to do what he says or anything. He said, you know what, the best way to learn is by your own mistakes, take it and run with it and do what you think. So that included everything from production plans to grain marketing and everything in between. And the idea from Northerly started at that point because, I mean, as a farmer, uh, when you start selling your grain and you're making these large contracts and, you you know, you get your uh, check cut to you at the end of a hard year's worth of work and everything's good, you pay your bills, you get ready for next year, you step into the grocery store and you go to the bulk food section and you look at the price of lentils and chickpeas and you start calculating what that is uh, on the consumer level in terms of bushels and you sit there and scratch your head and think, Man, there's there's got to be a different way, especially with farmers taking all of the risk. Um, and I've changed it from you know being loaded on rail cars and going out to uh, ports and shipped all over the world and having no clue where it goes to I can now walk into a grocery store and see my product sitting on the shelf and know, knowing I grew it. And if people have questions about my product, I'm the person who answers them. But of course, it wasn't so simple as just starting to deliver his oats to grocery stores rather than taking it to the local elevator. In fact, it took Clayton about 
eight months to figure out how to build a supply chain that included cleaning and processing and packaging and warehousing. And that's before he was even ready to start what is probably the hard part, sales. But Clayton persisted, committed to the idea of not only adding value to his family's farm, but in building a real brand. And by doing so, he's been able to merge his passion for farming with his passion for climbing in the outdoors. I have something called my Climb and Give program. And to raise awareness for both the brand Hunger North America and the built-in give back to our food brand, um, which is where you buy a two-pound bag of oats for me, I turn around and donate enough food to serve three people breakfast and the Feeding America Network, which is a, a national conglomerate of food banks all coming together under that umbrella. Uh, I'm climbing the tallest mountain on each of the seven summits. It's called the Seven Summits. And, and basically what I'm doing is if I get to the top of each of those mountains, I'll donate the mountain's elevation in terms of servings of food. So I climbed Mount Denali recently. It's 20,310 feet tall. That means I'm going to donate 20,310 servings of food to the Feeding America Network. Now that whole Climb and Give program, it's going to equate to about 142,000 servings of food. And... Um, 59,000 servings of that food or 11,000 pounds was already donated to St. Mary's this past February. I love the uniqueness of the Northerly brand from this climb and give program to just kind of making oats look cool. It's hard not to feel like this is something you want to support. And it seems to be resonating with people. I mean, Northerly has shipped oats to 43 states in the U.S. so far. A big part of the draw is the connection to consumers of knowing exactly where the food comes from and who they can speak with about how it's been grown and how it's arrived to them. Clayton sees all this as a developing model for where the industry is headed. Uh, and what I tell farmers all the time is the future of agriculture isn't necessarily getting bigger and taking on more risk in terms of you know the amount of capital you have to invest into equipment or labor or that sort of thing. You just have to find a way to create value in your own grains. And whether that's establishing a brand and creating your own market, or it's it's identifying different businesses that are small that you know might want to actually buy your grains directly, um, you just have to take the time and the effort and the energy to actually want to do that. And that's how you can extract more value from your grain, so you don't have to sit there and think, "Well, if I don't get bigger, I'll be gone one day." So, are you ready to buy some oats? For a lot of us, filling our pantry is a priority right now, and what better way to do that than with some delicious, shelf-stable rolled oats directly from this young farmer. Pick up a bag for yourself at northerly.ag, northerly.ag, kind of like agriculture. They have packages ranging from 2 pounds to 2,000 pounds. Hopefully, you don't need that much, but they can ship anywhere in the U.S. That's northerly.ag. Thanks to Clayton for sharing his story in our Farmer Spotlight segment. And shout out to Jay Nauta for connecting me to Northerly. Uh, this wraps up episode 200. <laughs> wow. Uh, thank you so much to those of you who choose to spend part of your week with me every week. It really is a humbling and, and truly meaningful part of my life. And I appreciate your time and your attention. We'll be back next week with more stories of ag innovation. 
Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Thank you.